country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And then he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for sustaining it for us that we might have it today. We've heard it read. We understand Give us now more than physical human understanding. Give us spiritual understanding. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things. Lord, bless and minister to your people through the preaching of the word. Protect me, your servant, from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are our rock and you are our redeemer. And we ask these things in the name of our only Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There was once a pastor who had a five-year-old daughter and the little girl noticed that every time her dad stood behind the pulpit and was getting ready to preach, he would bow his head for a moment in silence before he began to speak. So one day after the service, the little girl went to her dad and asked him, dad, why do you always bow your head like that right before your sermon?" Well, honey, the pastor answered, I'm asking God to help me, to help me preach a good sermon. The little girl then looked up at her father and asked, then how come he never answers you? <laughs> Ouch, right? Out of the mouth of babes. Well, perhaps I'm only one of a few of us in this room who has experienced harsh criticism over a sermon. Surely my brothers who preach for me here time to time never hear that. 
but I'm certainly not the only one in this room who's a critic. Whether it be the passage itself, whether it be our expectation or experience of a preacher's exposition, his illustrations, his applications, his ability to communicate correctly and effectively, his speaking style or his overall demeanor. Even if we find good things about a sermon, most of us, myself included, don't have to travel very far in our hearts or very far in our minds to find something to criticize. Now, lest you think that I'm setting myself up for a pity party, this morning, or maybe you think I'm hoping for some attaboy pats on the back as you leave, or even if you think I'm setting you up for some self-serving rebuke, that's not what's happening here. That's not what I'm doing. I'm merely setting the stage. I'm setting the stage for the events that unfold right before us here in Luke chapter four, pointing out what is common to all of us. And this is what's common to all of us. It's our tendency let me preface it, our sinful tendency to shut off our hearts and shut off our minds to God's word, whatever the reason may be. That's what we all have in common, a sinful tendency to shut off our hearts and shut off our minds to God's word. I mean, it's easy to blame the preacher. It is, but we, like the congregation here at Nazareth, are prone to criticize and even reject God's word rather than to gladly receive it and rejoice in it. I have to say again, even as your regular weekly preacher, I am prone to do the same. The text that I read, the text before us should be familiar to you. It's mentioned in other places in the gospels, but yet it's unique here as it's presented. Luke, remember, is our investigative reporter. He's writing so that his readers may have certainty concerning the things that they've been taught about Jesus. Remember, the gospel according to Luke is the gospel of certainty. So Luke takes this account of Jesus preaching in his hometown, the account that's familiar to all of us, it's the account that, as I said before, is briefly mentioned in the other gospels, particularly Matthew and Mark. Luke takes this account and he shifts it. You can say he's getting shifty, okay? He shifts it, not that way. And he expands on it. So what do I mean when I say he shifts it and expands it? What I mean is this, that chronologically speaking, Luke presents this account out of order. Luke takes it from another place in time and brings it forward, Okay? He brings it forward and presents it earlier. He also expands on it. He gives us far more detail than what you can find in Matthew 13 or Mark 6. This isn't problematic, though. Don't take this as problematic. Luke isn't making a counter case to the other gospel writers. He's not challenging Matthew and Mark. This isn't problematic. It's strategic. Luke is being strategic. And it's strategic because Luke, at the very offset of Jesus's ministry, he wants us to understand something that we can often overlook when we consider the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. What we might actually call the very central occupation of Jesus. And that is his regular practice of teaching and preaching the word of God. 
So high was Jesus' view of scripture that he regularly taught it. He regularly preached it to others. So let's start there this morning. Let's start with the occupation of Jesus. That sounds kind of funny, but I'm talking about one of his chief jobs, so to say. That'll be our first of three points. First of three points this morning, the occupation of Jesus. Look at verse 15. Very clearly and very succinctly, Luke states that Jesus, quote, taught in their synagogues. Uh, We'll get to it next week, but if you look down later in verse 44, kind of the inclusio that he likes to do, how uh, Luke likes to wrap things up. Look in verse 44, he says that Jesus was, quote, preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So whether it be when he was a boy left behind in Jerusalem at age 12, which we looked at a few weeks ago, or even now, right after he emerges from his battle with Satan in the wilderness, whether it be his regular teaching of his disciples as he did, or his preaching to the masses that were gathered around him, from sermons in synagogues to sermons on the mount, Jesus is a preacher of God's word. Jesus is a proclaimer of God's word. So the setting here in Jesus's hometown of Nazareth is actually quite ordinary. It's ordinary that Jesus would be here to preach in the synagogue. But the fact that there was a synagogue is also ordinary. From the time of their return from exile in Babylon, the synagogue had grown and become a central part of the life of the Jewish people. So in addition to those regular pilgrimages, which we read about to Jerusalem for those feasts, the people regularly gathered together every Sabbath day in the local synagogue. They gathered together for worship. They gathered to sing the Psalms. They gathered to pray. They gathered to read the word of God. They gathered to hear teaching on the word of God. In other words, they went, as we might say, they went to church. The Jewish people went to church. And Jesus went to church too. Jesus went to church. He grew up in a faithful family and faithful families prioritize the gathering of God's people for corporate worship. Luke makes this very clear in verse 16. You can look there yourself. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Not as was his custom to go and teach because he's this great teacher. As was his custom, meaning his heritage, what he did. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I always get a kick out of those people who downplay the importance of the church. Say it's some new creation. It's not. I get a kick out of those who go as far as to say things like, well, Jesus wasn't religious. He didn't prioritize gathering together. He prioritized living out the principles. False antithesis, right? (laughs) He prioritized both. Pointing them, when you hear people say things like that, have them read these passages. What does this mean? Jesus was faithful as was his custom, as he was reared, as the people of God were called to do, to gather together and to worship. Listen, if anyone had the right to think that he didn't need to go to worship service, it was Jesus, right? 
I mean, as I prepare to preach every week, I have this thought, imagine how many times Jesus had to sit through a really below average sermon like mine. I mean, imagine how many times he sat there and went, but. Or if anyone ever had a right to say, well, my worship service is out in the woods. I'm just gonna go up to the top of the mountain and look out at majesty and I'm gonna grow close to my father there in heaven and it just be he and I. I mean, he, he obviously had the right to do that, right? He does it, but he doesn't forsake the gathering. And so Jesus goes to the synagogue. Jesus practiced a regular pattern of public worship. As Luke says, it was his custom. If going to worship, I'm preaching to the choir here, if going to worship was a priority for him, then it should obviously be a priority for us particularly as the day shifts to the Lord's day, resurrection day, and we're told they gathered together as the people of God on resurrection day. They broke bread together, as we'll do later. They gathered together and they worship. Don't forsake that gathering, we're told. It's important for us because it was important to our savior. So all of this from Jesus's commitment to regular worship with God's people to his commitment to regularly preaching and teaching God's word, even in the synagogue, all of this helps us to see what I call the ordinariness of what's happening here in Luke 4. But to state the obvious, Jesus isn't an ordinary preacher. He's not just some ordinary guy who happens to be in town who can give a message. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the preacher. And he truly preaches, look at what Luke says in verse 14, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Every preacher, guest preacher, regular preacher, should pray for the unction of the Holy Spirit, to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. So powerful is Jesus' preaching that Luke notes in verses 14 and 15, you can see it, that word was spreading about Jesus. People were glorifying him. Now, this is likely, as I said, we're a little chronologically off. Jesus spends some time in Capernaum before this, which Luke will jump to. Uh, Jesus had already been performing miracles. Jesus had already been preaching in the synagogues. Word was spreading about him. He was becoming very popular. He was becoming known as a powerful preacher, a modern day prophet. So even in the days before social media, he had lots of followers. Lots of people knew him. Lots of people liked him. Lots of people wanted to hear what he had to say. And so now he gets to come home to his hometown, to his hometown of Nazareth. I mean, what a day, right? He's our guy. And now he's here. He's back in his home church and he gets to deliver a sermon to his people, the same people he grew up among, the same people of whom he served as a carpenter in their midst in his father's business. So what does Jesus have to say? What does he have to say? This brings us to our second point this morning, the proclamation of Jesus. The proclamation. Visiting teachers had the privilege of selecting the passage upon which they wanted to teach. So they would be there at the synagogue, it would be known to the synagogue leaders that they would be there and say, what do you wanna teach on? Uh, Jesus had that privilege uh, so evidently Jesus had asked, there would have been someone responsible to grab the scrolls and get them out and bring them to the rabbi, to the teachers. He wanted the scroll of Isaiah. Now, 
this might shock some of you, but Jesus didn't have chapters and verses like we think of today. He didn't say, okay, people, let's give our attention to the reading and hearing of God's word in Isaiah chapter 61. No, so it even says that he found the place. This is just constant stream of Hebrew letters on a scroll. He found the place. He knew God's word. He found the place. It was Isaiah 61. Oh, well-known prophecy about the coming Messiah called the servant of the Lord in the totality of Isaiah 61, the Messiah that's promised to the people. So Jesus unrolls that scroll and he reads, and look at the words again in verses 18 and 19. He reads straight from Isaiah 61, one and two. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to sit at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a passage that people would have been familiar with. They probably heard lots of teachings on this and what it meant for them in the future. So if you follow along with how Luke describes what happens, uh, when Jesus would have spoken these words, the whole congregation would have been standing in front of him and then he would have taken his seat in a chair, the teaching chair, so to say, and then all the people there would have sat down at his feet. They would have sat on the ground, he would have sat in the chair. They would have sat on the ground. That's where we get our phrase, right? Sitting at the feet of our teacher or sitting at the feet of our master. This comes from the practice of that day. He would have been sitting there and then everyone would have sat in front of him. Can you just imagine being in that room? It's like thick with anticipation, right? He picked that passage. We love that passage. What's he gonna say? Notice Luke says the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He probably didn't get nervous like the rest of us preachers do. Like that moment right before you start when everybody's looking at you. I got five minutes before I check out. What you gonna say to keep me in? You know, like he didn't have that. He sits there. And he does something amazing. Now, this is not prescription for how short sermons are supposed to be, okay? He may have kept speaking, it's unclear. But this is what he said that was well enough for us to have recorded for us. What does he say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Talk about a mic drop, right? I don't think he needed to say anything after that. Boom, here I am. Do you catch that? This scripture about the servant, about the Messiah, it's fulfilled. There's gravity to this. Gravity, I think, that gets lost on us. It wasn't lost on that congregation. I mean, it's obviously, when you say something like that, it takes a moment to sink in, which I think Luke kind of helps us capture that, right, with that phrase. They were just absolutely amazed at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Like, they didn't know how to react. So what, what's sinking in? We don't have time to dive into this, but there's several passages in the book of Isaiah that speak about the coming Messiah and the Messiah is called the servant of the Lord. So we call these passages in Isaiah, the servant passages. You might know Isaiah 53, he's presented as the suffering servant, the one who would like a sheep being led uh, to the slaughter, right? The one who would bear all of our iniquities. He would suffer for his people. But there were also ones like this one that talked about the conquering and liberating servant, right? The Messiah who 
comes in power and glory and brings with him the last day and restores Israel and restores the world to God. This passage that Jesus reads is from Isaiah 61, a passage that speaks of conquering and liberation. When Jesus finishes reading, he basically says that that servant, the one you've been waiting for, the one spoken of in Isaiah 61, is right here. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. You don't believe me, look how the people react later. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's saying the last days are here. Jesus is publicly declaring that he has come to bring spiritual deliverance from the power of sin. He's come to bring the gospel to the poor. He's come to bring liberty to the captive and oppressed. He's come to bring sight to the blind. These words are gonna ring loud in the ears of those who are hearing it. They have always assumed that these words were not talking about spiritual things. They were talking about earthly things, right? They thought that this passage was some sort of political manifesto. They've been expecting an earthly salvation that would bring them a form of physical deliverance. The people of Israel at this time, they wanted a social revolution. They wanted a medical revolution. They wanted a political revolution. That's what they expected from their Messiah. And surely we know that Jesus has the power to do all of that. And he is doing it in his time, according to his plan. And isn't that exactly what Satan had tempted him with? Have it all now. Just worship me and all these kingdoms will be yours. But that wasn't Jesus' calling. Suffering comes before glory. The people of Nazareth have to come to grips with that. So do we. In fact, Jesus will spend the rest of his earthly years dealing with people who were constantly disappointed in his failure to bring that earthly kingdom. And he still does. So what happens here at Nazareth is just the beginning of a recurring pattern. So what happens? How do the people of Nazareth respond to their hometown prophet? That brings us to our third and final point, the rejection. The rejection of Jesus. It starts in verse 22. Wait, isn't this Joseph's son? Who's this guy? Isn't that the guy who made our kitchen table? Isn't that the guy that made the feeding troughs for us for the animals? Didn't he and his dad and his brothers make that? Who's this guy? Who does he think he is? He thinks he's the Messiah? We're not surprised by this, are we? How often do we look at certain people, maybe by from where they came, maybe by how they look, maybe by how they speak, how they act and say, oh, There's no way that person, no way. Flip side that, how many times have you been surprised? I remember being at the gym one time and I was watching this little guy just load the bar for a deadlift. And I thought, I'm gonna have to help him. You know, and then as he's loading, I'm like, I don't think I'm gonna be able to help him. (laughs) That's more than me, right? And so I watched from afar and just three in a row, like nothing happened. That's maybe a silly illustration, but I underestimated his power, his ability based on how he looked and how nonchalant he was about adding that much weight on a bar. We do the same. These people are doing the same. Who are you? You're just some 
You're a poor guy from a poor town. Remember, your parents barely rubbed together enough shekels to, to get pigeons for your offering. Who are you? You can't be the Messiah, the king. Well, we're not surprised by this, right? Jesus knows their hearts. He doesn't have to wait for them to talk. Verses 23 and 24, he makes appeal to a modern day saying, you know, medical practice in Jesus's day was dubious at best. Might still be today, I don't know. But uh, people often skeptical of what a doctor would tell them. They look at the doctor and say, "Uh uh-uh, heal yourself first. You wanna give that to me? Put it in your body first. You want me to do that? You do it first. Prove it. Show it to somebody else, right? Let me see it. So they would say, hey, physician, heal yourself. Prove it. So Jesus reveals that in the hearts, these people are thinking that. If you're really the Messiah, prove it. Do those miracles we've heard about. Do all those things that are making you famous. We wanna see it for ourselves. But Jesus didn't come there to offer that proof. He came there to proclaim. And I would say he's proclaiming a fundamental truth. The truth that God's deliverance was for those who received it by faith and that it was not surprising for God's prophet and even God's word to be rejected by those who should have been the quickest to accept it. You may think, where'd you get that from? His examples, verses 25 through 27. Jesus turns to the history of Israel for two examples. He first talks about a famine in Elijah's day. There's a famine, there's no food. People are dying. They're still a disobedient to God. What does God do in those days? He provides food for a widow, a Gentile widow, and sustains her, sustains her in grace. And then he mentions the lepers in Elisha's time. There were a lot of lepers in Israel, but it wasn't those lepers that God healed. It was Naaman, the Syrian, that Gentile leader. He was healed because of what? His faith. Widow had faith. Naaman the Syrian had faith. That's what Jesus is using those examples for. So to put it plainly, what Jesus is saying is that God will reject and pass over those who do not receive the Messiah whom he sent. God and his judgment will pass them by. He's basically saying, God, I'm here to proclaim this and God's gonna pass you by in judgment. Well, that's popular, right? I got invited back to my hometown church. I wasn't raised in the church, so I don't really have one to go back to that way, but it would be like going back and saying, you don't have faith? God's gonna reject you. The people of Nazareth don't wanna hear this. They don't wanna hear it from one of their own, who if anything, he should, he should be pro-Nazareth, right? In the minds of the people, if the Messiah, this earthly king, right, was to come from Nazareth, then Nazareth should be his first and foremost concern. Start with your hometown. But that's not his concern. The Messiah has come to bring salvation to all kinds of people, all kinds of people, Jews, Gentiles alike, all those who have faith in him. So Jesus is rejected along with his message. And when I say rejected, I mean rejected. And what might be the vilest display of the rejection of a preacher and maybe some of our worst fears, look at verse 29. They rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the very edge of the hill so they could do what? Throw him off of it. I'm gonna start leaving by that door. 
Okay. Okay, I don't have time to get into this, but don't you love how he just escapes? Like, I love the details that God wants us to have. He'll give us details down to who was the governor at the time, right? And who his brother was and the other ruler so we can verify it, but he won't tell us how Jesus slipped away. Don't, don't get stuck there. I did, I did that for you this week. I got stuck there. Let me uh, start to land the plane. Um, pastor and commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, calls this whole episode vintage Jesus. This is what he means. He says, Jesus tells you like it is, and either you reject him or you accept him, period. Jesus tells you like it is. He makes you deal with him. It's still true today, is it not? You now have the whole of scripture right there in your hands. You've perhaps read what the Bible says about Jesus. Perhaps you've heard other people tell you what the Bible says about Jesus. You've read it for yourself. You've considered it and you've either accepted him for who he is or you have rejected him. You know that accepting him leads you on the narrow road that brings you into everlasting life, into salvation with him in heaven. You know that rejecting him leads you on the wide road that brings you into everlasting death and condemnation in hell. We either accept or we reject. So which of those best describes you? Which best describes you? If you've rejected Jesus, I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'm glad you're still here. Here's my prayer. That God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, will do for you what he did for me change your heart, give you a new heart and cause you to cry out to him for salvation. So listen, repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. I, I read it earlier from Romans 10. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Accept the Lord Jesus. Believe and be saved. My prayer is that today will be a day of salvation for any of you who have and who are rejecting Jesus. Many of us have accepted Jesus. We might still be coming to grips with what the Bible says about him. So let me ask you what I've asked myself all week. Why am I so critical? Why am I so critical of Jesus and what the word says about him? Why am I so critical? Y'all, I've said this before. Megan's the sunshine, I'm the rain cloud. She's, you know, the glass is half full or half empty. I'm like, what glass? Okay. I have a sinful spirit of criticism at times, including studying the scriptures. Dale Davis, who I just mentioned, not only said that this passage is vintage Jesus, but he followed it up by saying this, and this is how he worked in my heart this week. He says, Jesus is rejected not in Sodom and Gomorrah, but in Nazareth. He said, being familiar with Jesus can prove dreadfully dangerous. The people of Nazareth were familiar with the Messiah of the Old Testament. They were familiar with the Jesus of their own hometown, but they rejected the idea that this hometown prophet is the Messiah. Like us, they wanted a Jesus made after their own image. They wanted a Messiah after their own individual expectations and their own national expectations. 
Something we don't do, do we? Something we all do. We all do that. We read the word. We hear the word of God preached. We're familiar with Jesus, but instead of regularly asking God to soften our hearts and conform our hearts to the truth of his word, we reject it because it doesn't fit our expectations or our anticipations. We often say things like, okay, thanks for showing me that. I see that Jesus condemned that sin, condemned that behavior, but I'm not sure it applies to me living in this century in my circumstances. Or maybe I know that God wants us to think this way. I know that God wants us to submit. I know that God wants us to love. I know that God wants us to step out in faith, but you know, it's kind of outdated, right? Like, don't we have more knowledge today? Don't we have more things to consider? Some of you are like, those are great caricatures, Pastor Dan. They are, I can't go through every single way that we do that. But the the question each and every one of us has to face is this. Are we willing to take Jesus at his word? Are we willing to take Jesus at his word? Are we willing to put down those tools and those instruments and thoughts and behaviors that we use to make Jesus who we want him to be? And instead, do we gladly receive God's word and by his grace and his strength, we conform our lives to it? So much of what we try to do is conform the Bible, conform Jesus to us and what we want and what we think. But rather we're called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind as God by his spirit takes his word and applies it to us and changes us and brings us more into conformity of who Christ is and who we are becoming. So that's my question. Are you willing to let God's truth inform your view of the world inform your view of what it means to follow him, are you gonna do the opposite? I need help. I need accountability. I need the spirit. Certainly you do too. Don't settle for a Jesus in your own image, but worship the Jesus who's presented clearly in the scriptures, the Messiah, our savior, who will one day return and indeed make all things new, amen? Amen. Would you grab your bulletins?